This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Bradford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure to be here with you today uh, since the UConn football game is not until uh, 7 p.m. kickoff, uh, pre-game show at 5.30 with Ray. But we have a chance to get a show in, and this is a show I've been wanting to do. And I can tell you because October was Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We couldn't get this in, but I really wanted this guest on the program. Our guest is Dr. Helen Paracas, and she's going to be on. Dr. Paracas is going to be on with us to talk about plastic and reconstructive surgery, specifically for breast cancer survivors. So we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, and a lot of things about plastic surgery because, you know, that's really the exciting field of medicine. It is really among our most exciting fields and how you can reconstruct body parts. Uh, so it's just fascinating. We're going to talk about breast cancer, some of the statistics, causes, how to cut your risk back uh, for breast cancer. So it, it's important. I'm going to throw the numbers out now, even though we're going to get to them in about 15 minutes. We'll start taking calls, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842, 966-WTIC. If you're a little shy and don't want to come on the air, you can email me at info at alessimd.com, and I will uh, be able to talk about your question or comment on the air. This day in medicine, November 18, 1836, Dr. Cesare Lombroso was born. Dr. Lombroso was an Italian physician and a criminologist, and he wrote an interesting work called L'Uomo Delinquente. The Delinquent Man. He wrote this in 1876. And in his work, he had a theory about criminal types based on personality, physique, and their mental constitution. So essentially, Dr. Lombroso was the first profiler, right? We always hear about profilers now. Does the criminal fit the profile? They look, and they look at the crime. And that's what Dr. Lombroso, an Italian physician, was doing in 1876. So a uh, very interesting story uh, behind that day and this being his birthday. Uh, this week, I had a great opportunity. I gave grand rounds over at uh, the UConn. Actually, it was at Hartford Hospital for the UConn Department of Neurology. So everybody asked me, what are grand rounds? Grand rounds is uh, when you give a presentation in front of usually a hundred or more people in an amphitheater. So you can imagine, right? You got the amphitheater, you got your slides and you present your work and everybody gets a chance to take a shot at you. And it used to be much more, fortunately it wasn't too bad this week. Uh, but uh, at uh, grand rounds, you open yourself up, your theories, what proof there is, what information you have, and you open it up 
to the criticism of your colleagues. And that's part of peer review. We always think of peer review in journals and things like that. But you open up your work to your peers and see what they think. And it's often interesting. Some have suggestions. You may want to go in this direction, that direction. Or if it's really bad, they're going to tell you, you know, you're all wet and you ought to go back to the lab. Or what the heck are you thinking? Uh, And it used to be like that, a lot more like that when I was at the University of Michigan. Uh, But anyhow, um, I gave a talk on uh, recovery from concussion in baseball because baseball is the hardest sport to come back to after a concussion. And it's fascinating for a neurologist because there's so much neurophysiology involved in hitting a baseball. It is truly the most complex task in popular sports is to hit a baseball and to activate so many neural networks in the brain to be able to do that. So obviously to be able to come back after damaging your brain is such a struggle. So we went over that and and I had a a great time and a lot of fun. I thank them for inviting me. Uh, My article in the Norwich Bulletin this week was about smelling salts. Now, smelling salts, when I think of smelling salts, I think of, you know, in the old days, since I'm old, I guess, you know, when you went to a funeral home, that was the giveaway, right? They used to give you a little plastic case with three ampules of smelling salts because so many people would faint in the funeral home. And really, it dates back to the Victorian era when particularly women might faint or have syncope. What happens is when you're fainting, when you feel faint in general, you might be dehydrated, um, you might be in pain, you might be in shock, your heart slows. So smelling salts are basically salts of ammonia. They are very noxious. I mean, they irritate the mucosa of your nose. So you immediately withdraw and it irritates you. And with that irritation, your heart kicks in and starts pumping faster. So if someone is fainting, that reaction would help get their heart to pump and hopefully avoid them from totally collapsing. Well, only in sports can they have a theory now that using smelling salts might make you more alert. So again, one of these foolish theories, but ESPN, the magazine reports 80% of NFL players are sniffing smelling salts, either in the huddle on the bench or somewhere. It doesn't help. It does not improve your performance. It does not treat concussion. Okay, it really has absolutely no purpose in sports because one thing's for sure, when you're running out on the field trying to chase somebody, your heart has not slowed up. So unless you're going to defy all the rules of physiology, athletes should not be using smelling salts. And my fear is always that this pseudo tradition or whatever is going to start making its way down to high school and college. And and it's just, again, one of the ridiculous things. So I throw that out there for parents to know and athletes who are listening that it's an absolute fallacy. Forget the smelling salts, unless you're in a funeral home. Um, The new blood pressure requirements came out this week. So everybody's kind of bent out of shape about this one because we used to think anybody who had a blood pressure that was over 140 over 90, was had high blood pressure. Well, we've decided to lower that number to 130 over 80. So does that mean if you're over 130, if you're 135 over 80, 
Does that mean you need medication? The answer is no. So essentially, it's increased the number of people who are classified as having hypertension or high blood pressure by 14% of the country. And in doing so, what it means is that that group needs to be more alert to the things that will control blood pressure and not include medication. So back to the basics, folks. Diet, exercise, sleep. Adjust your lifestyle and get rid of the things that cause your blood pressure to go up. Stress, smoking. So, you know, we've we've had, and I should get him back on, um, Dr. Setu Vora was on it and talked about the 5-15-30, right? So five, cor- five portions of vegetables and fruits a day, 15 minutes of meditation or mindfulness, 30 minutes of exercise, 5-15-30. If you could do that every day, you you have a tremendous effect on diminishing your risk factors for high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke. Next up, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Helen Paracas. Dr. Paracas is a medical doctor who specializes in plastic surgery, and we're going to talk about breast reconstruction. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080. I saw her sitting in the rain Raindrops falling on her That's the music of the Cowsills um, who will be at uh, the Mohegan Sun Casino this weekend. And actually, uh, first of all, I didn't know they were still around, um, so I am dating myself. But by the same token, uh, it's a free show in the Wolf Den. Um, there is basketball, the Basketball Hall of Fame uh, kickoff is uh, this weekend, Saturday and Sunday. So there are several free shows, and one of those is the Cow Sills. Um, so if you are available, get down to the Mohegan Sun for boy, all of your pleasures at eating and entertainment and whatever else is going on there is tremendous, uh, as well as gambling. With that, uh, I bring you to my guest, uh, Dr. Helen Paracas. Dr. Paracas is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat surgeon, also board-certified in plastic surgery. She does facial surgery, but has a particular interest in doing breast reconstruction, and she is now practicing at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Helen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Helen, I was impressed by your bio, so can we talk a little bit about your training and how you got to this point? Because you've essentially done two separate very separate areas of training they're pretty much uh two distinct residencies almost sure. um so i uh, did my medical school at boston university uh, school of medicine and while i was a medical student uh, i realized i really wanted to be a surgeon um and i just happened to work with some head and neck surgeons and I loved it. I just loved the fact that they were doing these intricate uh, tumor resections as well as reconstructing them. And so, I mean, and that's like, stop, because that is, I mean, the head and neck surgeons are doing things that are phenomenal. I mean, it's unbelievable when we think about the face, okay, splitting the chin, um, the jawbone, taking out tumors from tongue. So head and neck surgeons are kind of rarefied air already. Well, people think that all we do is put in tubes and take out tonsils, but that's not even the tip of the iceberg. I mean, like you said, we do a lot of real 
major extensive surgery, uh, especially when we're dealing with head and neck cancer. And and then we also do a lot of facial uh, reconstructive and facial trauma surgery, fixing um, and reconstructing people after they've had a car accident or they've been assaulted. Um, and so I just off the bat, I was one of the things that really drew me into uh, otolaryngology uh, or ear, nose, throat, head, neck surgery. And then, of course, while I was uh, doing my residency, which I did uh, actually in, at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta, Georgia, uh, I started working with the plastic surgeons as well. And for some of these bigger tumors, we were at, in order to reconstruct them, we had to take tissue from the thigh and, and make part of what make was... Make a face. Make a face out of someone's yeah. thigh. Or, See, that's uh, what... And take not part every, of... Yeah, not every ear, nose, and throat surgeon does that, okay? So, I mean, that's rarefied air. But now you're rebuilding a face? Pretty much. Or, or you know, taking out a whole tongue and taking out part of the forearm and making... Uh, making a new tongue out of the form. So really incredible stuff. And the more I work with some of the plastic surgeons, the more I realized that I wanted to not just be uh, a head and neck surgeon, but I wanted to be a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. And I had the opportunity to do just one year of training and focus just on the face, or I had the opportunity to do three years of training and be able to reconstruct any part of the body. And and I decided to do that instead, and I went off to... Uh, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, at the University of Minnesota, and I did my three-year um, fellowship out there in, in general plastic and reconstructive surgery, and I decided I want to operate from anywhere from the head to the toes, uh, literally. Uh, we, we, as plastic surgeons and reconstructive surgeons, we do hand surgery, we do face surgery, we do breast reconstruction, we do body contouring. Um, we're really in essence, truly one of the few generalists that are still left because we really do operate on every part of the body. And it's it's amazing. Uh, I I've I mean, it's just amazing amount of training that you have and, and we're we're so happy to have you here. I guess, you know, a lot of your interest has been in breasts. Why are breasts so important in, in history and in the human body? In other words, there's a certain value okay and and what is that so if you think about it even just from ancient times the breasts have always been seen and, and that's why when you look at even african art or ancient greek art you the breasts are always depicted in their natural form and it's because they're in essence sort of a symbol of fertility uh they're a symbol of of womanhood of femininity um and you know, I guess from a functional standpoint, they're they're there for for breastfeeding, uh, but they're they're more important than just that. You know, they really are what a, a part of a woman that gives her her sense of self, and that's why, to me, breast reconstruction is very important. Uh, unfortunately, breast cancer is is a very common cancer. We we see one in eight women in their lifetime will be diagnosed with breast cancer. And they may have to undergo a mastectomy where that breast, that entire breast is going to be removed. And therefore, it's important to give some of these women something back, part of their self back, in essence, by reconstructing them. So there's got to be a psychological toll to doing a mastectomy Absolutely. in that sense. And so not only are you a surgeon, I mean, you got to be part Dr. Phil. I guess, uh, from that standpoint to, to try to get somebody into the situation where they understand 
what you're about to do to them. Absolutely. There's a lot of hand-holding. Um, I get, you know, in many ways, I get very close with my patients. Um, some of them even call me on my cell phone or text me uh, because it's something very scary they're going through. Uh, some of these patients are younger. They've never even had a minor surgery before. And now they have this this major diagnosis. And, and so I have to try to get them through it. Uh, get them through the primary surgeries, the secondary surgeries, and help them get back to their lives. So eventually, you know, in a year from now, they can sort of almost forget about it. You know, they, they get out of their shower, they, they see their a breast. It may not be the breast they had before, but there's something there. They go on their day, they get back to living their lives, and they put their breast cancer behind them. I guess you said something that just caught my interest. They call you on your cell phone or text you. <laughs> no, really, because it's it's interesting that that I mean you have to have a really good office to get you. Okay, in general, but more and more there are some patients who I also share my cell phone and text with. Uh, you know, I don't know if they're special patients, but they're patients who kind of need. That extra level. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know if people understand that. So there are doctors who give out their cell phones and text. Two of them are here. I guess it's more so in your job. I, I think, like you, you said, there are certain patients that they, they sort of need someone to help them. Maybe they don't have as much social uh, support. Uh, maybe they, they don't have uh, many family members or a spouse or children or someone to help them along the way. And as a physician, sometimes you're a physician, you're a psychiatrist, you're their therapist, you're their friend, you're, you're a little bit of everything. And you just, you know, part of my job is to get them through it. It's interesting because I've never had a patient abuse that privilege no, of having I, my cell phone and text, like call me for something that was ridiculous. No, I've I, never I, had that happen. I've never had that happen either. And I think um, patients know that it's almost a, a somewhat of a privilege that that they got their that they got your cell phone, and they really will only use it when they really need you. And um, and so I don't mind doing that for some of our patients. You talked a little bit about some of the trends in breast cancer. Um, can you talk a little bit? Well, we talked about some of the statistics. Are the trends? Are we seeing more breast cancer or less breast cancer? So. Um, that that's an interesting question. So I think sort of we initially, since the 1980s, we started seeing a higher incidence in breast cancer. And that probably had to do because more people were getting screening mammograms. Mammography um, was offered more and, and women knew about it and were getting more mammograms. So I think we started um, uh, finding these cancers earlier on. And so therefore it looked like there was a tick up in the numbers. Um, and then, of course, in the um, in the nineties, we we did see another tick up in the numbers in breast cancer cases. We now, historically looking back on it, think it's because during that time pre- period, um, hormonal replacement therapy was very popular. Once um, the connection between postmenopausal uh, hormone replacement therapy and breast cancer was made, and we started taking patients off of those. Um, uh, hormone replacements, uh, we started um, seeing that the numbers sort of stabilized. So since 2004, um, the numbers in breast cancer have sort of stabilized. Uh, that's tremendous. Now, with the National Preventive Services Task Force, 
Right. They came out with changing our criteria. They did. But a lot of doctors aren't really following that task force yet. We're still going by what the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has put out, what the American College of Family Medicine has used. Um, the task force uh, ended up increasing the number at which someone would end up getting a screening mammogram. And I think a lot of physicians realize that uh, a lot of our patients are sometimes younger patients who are diagnosed, and we don't want to lose diagnosing those patients. Yeah, so we have a long history on this show with the Prevention Services Task Force where we disagree with them wholeheartedly. And then a friend of mine recently was a physician I worked with at the Coast Guard um, and the Public Health Service now goes to work for the Prevention Services Task Force. So I still have his cell number to complain. Um, with that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're back with Dr. Helen Paracas. We're talking about breast cancer, breast reconstructive surgery. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842. We're going to open the phone lines for the second half of the show, and it's 800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080. Wow, you're really onto the cow shells today. Uh, it's Matt playing those. He's going to play both of their hits. Um, we're back on Healthy Rounds, and we're chatting with Dr. Helen Paracas. Dr. Paracas is a plastic surgeon. Uh, she's also an ear, nose, and throat otorhinolaryngologist and does facial plastics. But we're uh, talking a lot about breast reconstructive surgery. Um Helen, I want to get in a little bit about the history of breast cancer surgery because it's interesting from my standpoint as a more senior physician. I remember the days as a medical student where we were doing radical mastectomies and then we've moved to doing modified radical mastectomy and then lumpectomy. Can you explain for the audience what those terms mean and how breast surgery, breast cancer surgery has evolved? Evolved. Um, a lot of it has to do with historically. We thought that the more tissue we remove, the the, the better it was. You know, they, we used to say if there's a way to cut, there's a way to cure, and and that was a theory in in radical mastectomies. The re- reason we call it radical is it really was. We were removing all of the skin, all of the breast tissue, and the entire pectoralis muscle, that I pec know. muscle, and so we were leaving these women. Not not just flat, but almost a concave deformity, um, just completely concave um, with with nothing left than just a little bit of skin right over the ribs. Um, and then, of course, we started realizing that when people were studying these patients and looking long term at the, their mortality rates, that doing these radical surgeries wasn't necessarily cutting down their risks of dying from their breast cancer. And that's sort of when we went to modified uh, mastectomies, where we decided that there was no reason to remove that pec muscle um, and that we could then take out a little bit less skin because if the skin wasn't involved by the actual tumor, there wasn't tumor growing through the skin or attached to the skin, then there was no reason to really remove that skin. The other thing is that as time went on, radiation got better. And chemotherapy got better. So um, all, all of these things, as science sort of moved along, made it that we could 
do less surgery or less radical surgery to the point that um, now many women choose to get a lumpectomy where just that tumor is removed and then they're treated with radiation afterwards. And then we're able to do a lymph node sampling at the same time of the lumpectomy. And depending on whether we think that the, uh, if the, if the tumor is spread to the lymph nodes, then they may need uh, uh, chemotherapy. Um, if not, they just get their lumpectomy, their radiation and, and they have what we call a breast conserving surgery where they're able to keep the majority of their breast. They might be able to be, depending on where that tumor is, they may be able to keep their nipple. Now, unfortunately, there are still some tumors that we find late in stage or they're very invasive tumors uh, or they're tumors that are multifocal, meaning they're in different parts of the breast. And so in those cases, we still need to do mastectomies. The good thing is that many times, depending on where that tumor is, how big that tumor is, how far away it is from the nipple, we're still able to save the nipple or we're doing skin sparing mastectomies where we're still um, removing the minimal amount of skin that we need to remove along with all of the breast tissue. And the good thing is that now we're able to reconstruct women and we're able to do the reconstruction immediately at the same time as the mastectomy. Um, And we can do reconstruction in many different ways. We can use implants and tissue expanders, or we can use um, our own tissues, which is what we, we refer to as an autologous reconstruction. You bring up several different issues. So let me go back to something you mentioned. So nipple sparing surgery. Uh, interesting because often tumor invades the ducts. Yes. So how do you, how do you go about doing that? So th- there's, there's definitely some criteria um, and, a tumor has to be at a certain uh, distance away from the nipple from us to safely do it. The other thing is that um, after we've done a nipple sparing mastectomy, sometimes we take a little bit of tissue from the inferior aspect of that nipple and we send it off for what we call frozen sections where they're able, the pathologists are able to look under the microscope and ensure that there's no cancer cells in that specimen. And then we feel more certain that we're able to leave that nipple in place. Um, okay, so when you talked a little bit about sparing the skin, uh, do you use and and using fillers? So you can use natural. So would you take fat from another part of the body to fill in what you took out? It, it depends. So basically, you need you need something to fill the space. You need a spacer. And, and this is done when you said at the same time as their surgery. So this is the same operation. The same operation. Oh, so it's not like they. Nope. They go the back. Breast surgeon back. is there. I usually help out the uh, breast oncologist. Okay. And they leave, and then I'm right there in the room. Okay. Um. So it it really is a concurrent case. Long operation. Um. You know, not not that long. Uh, in fact, if it's an implant based reconstruction where we're just putting a tissue expander or an implant in, it only adds maybe an hour and a half or so oh. in addition to the mastectomy part. So we're we're able to cut down the time that a patient's under anesthesia we don't need to do a second sur- uh, second surgery so um and what we're doing now is with these tissue expanders is they're basically like a balloon and we're able to put a little balloon under that muscle and it tents the skin up for us and it stretches the muscle and sort of acts as a spacer and we are able to then expand this balloon with what well, we use saline we use salt water um over time, 
and get it to the size that we want uh, to match the other side if the patient only had a one-sided mastectomy. Um, and then eventually we're able to remove that spacer, that tissue expander, and put in a uh, an implant, a silicone gel implant. Uh, so that's one way that we reconstruct women. That's probably how 90% of women in the country are being reconstructed. Is how long it, does that take? In other words, uh, excuse me for interrupting, but I just wanted to get – so when you're using a tissue expander, how long are we talking – Weeks, months. So we usually leave that tissue expander in for about three months. Okay? okay. Now some patients may, depending on once their final pathology came back, they may need radiation. They may need chemotherapy. Well, then unfortunately their time frame sort of gets extended because of their actual cancer treatment. Um, but if they don't need any radiation, if if we're just we have the expander and we're we all we need to do is in three months we can just swap that out through the same incision. It's a small surgery, the swap-out surgery, um, and they go home the same day. There's no drains. There's very little pain because sort of that that pocket has already been made. So now we're just sort of switching it out from the balloon to the, the implant, the silicone gel implant. Uh, it's unbelievable just kind of thinking about that. Um, let's. What we're going to do is take a short break. I want to get back and, and hit kind of the future of – breast treatment, breast cancer treatment, mm-hmm. in terms of the genetics, prophylactic mastectomies that we're hearing uh, more about, and, and a little bit more about future treatments. Uh, we're chatting with Dr. Helen Paracas from St. Saint Francis Hospital and Medical Center, uh, and we're talking about breast reconstruction. By the way, I wanted to make sure everybody has the phone number for Dr. Paracas. It's 860-714-6574. So if you want to make an appointment with her um, at her office. That's the phone number, and we'll also put that on the website. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. We're in the final stretch here in our last segment of chatting with Dr. Helen Paracas. Dr. Paracas is a plastic surgeon specializing in breast reconstruction. And uh, not a lot of docs doing what you do, Helen. I mean, uh, to this degree, and, and so it, I'm finding this conversation fascinating, especially because there seems to be a movement. We talked about the importance of breast reconstruction, yet there are some people out there who opt for no reconstruction. That's true, um, and at the end of the day, it really is a woman's decision and and how she feels at that time. And there are many women who just want to get rid of the cancer. And they don't want the reconstruction. They just want to focus on them being sort of rid of their breast cancer. And and that's okay because that's what that pa- those certain patients decide on. And for those patients, they do make special prostheses that you can place inside special bras and kind of go on your business. In fact, uh, now instead of prostheses, uh, there, there's actually an organization that's knitting these little balls, they're, I think they're called knit knockers, and uh, they're, they're just sort of really soft prostheses that women can actually buy and use instead. So that, that is an option. And some of these women actually may decide that they may not want reconstruction at the same time as their surgery because they're going to have radiation or chemotherapy or something else or other things are going on in their lives. They're busy. They have kids. They have things going on. And they can always do what we call a delayed reconstruction where, you know, a couple of years later, five years later, 10 years later, they may come back and now decide that they do want reconstruction and we can still reconstruct those people. And that's 
Well, let's go to the other extreme uh, in the sense that there are people now having prophylactic mystectomies. So uh, – and actually I had a patient this week uh, who was explaining to me that she did have that done. Um, so can we talk a little bit about that? What There's kind of a movement – toward that as well. Angelina Jolie probably being the most famous person who has had a prophylactic mastectomy. Can you talk a little bit about the genetics or what would make someone want to do that? There are some women that have a very strong family history where they will tell you that their mother had breast cancer. They, they had two or three aunts with breast cancer. They had a grandmother with breast cancer. It just runs rampant in their family. The good thing is now with genetics, we're able to test for certain uh, genes. And so, for example, there's the BRCA1 gene and the BRCA2 gene and many other genes now that we're testing for. And if a patient is positive for one of those genes, we know that they have a very high likelihood of getting breast cancer in their future. And so some of those patients opt to get a prophylactic mastectomy. Um, it's a it's a self-decision, obviously. Um, but in many ways, it gives those patients peace of mind. They've seen family members die from aggressive tumors and so they kind of want to take their uh, health into their own hands and this is a way that they can do that. The good thing about um, prophylactic mastectomies is that there's no cancer there and so many times we're able depending on on a woman's shape and and breast size and breast shape we're able to save the the nipple we're able to do it through a um, um, an incision that's right under the crease what we call the inframammary fold so uh, it, it may not even actually be visible and we're able to either put implants in right at the same time uh, or at a second stage and they'll end up with pretty much not even realize not you know someone who 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 may see them naked won't even know that they've actually had a mastectomy because they we can actually get really wonderful uh reconstructive and aesthetic results what do you we touched on this slightly but what do you recommend for women who are listening what is the proper time sequence to get a mammogram so that that depends uh women who've had a family history of breast cancer uh, depending on on when their uh, family history, uh, the, the youngest age that someone in their family had breast cancer, they should probably start getting screened 10 years earlier. Because unfortunately, we've seen women even in their, in their 20s with, with um, or in their early 30s with breast cancer. Uh, otherwise, um, usually what we tell people is they can get a baseline mammogram at 35 and then get their mammograms at 40 or start a baseline at 40 and then continue getting their mammograms thereafter. Mammograms are also somewhat controversial. We have digital mammograms. Uh, there are standard mammograms. There is uh, there are MRIs, right, or CT mammograms. There are yes. Um, what do you recommend? I think getting even just a screening mammogram, because then once they've get a they've get a screening mammogram. If something is seen on the screening mammogram, they'll then get a secondary diagnostic mammogram and an ultrasound to confirm what is being seen. Um. And many times, uh, especially at St. Francis, where, where we have the Comprehensive Women's Center, we can actually do the mammogram and an ultrasound at the same sitting. And our radiologists are actually reading the scans while the patient is still there so that if something is seen, right. they can actually re-image them or image them with, with another modality so that we're sort of able to take care of that person versus having to call them 
giving them a diagnosis over the phone or scaring them over the phone. We can do it right there, face to face, figure things out and sort of help them along and and, and, and get them to where they need to be. That's tremendously efficient. Uh, Is a screening mammogram a digital mammogram? It is a digital mammogram. That's the same thing. Yes. Okay. Um, So if we were to take a step backward in, in looking at that, there are all these false positives. And I guess that's the argument that's been made for too many mammograms is we're seeing too much that we cannot explain. How do we get around that argument? I think, you know, I think the only way to really get around that is um, is sort of realizing that wouldn't you rather find someone's, you know, breast cancer? You might you, you might have a few false positives in there, but you'll also actually find someone and and save someone's life and and I think sometimes that's the way you have to look at things. Okay. Okay. And and I I would assume that by having a comprehensive breast center, by having it done a com- you can really identify the false positives as well. So if you look at something and you think it may be a false positive or or a true positive, by going to the next modality you could resolve that at the same time rather than send somebody home thinking that they may have breast cancer. Yes. Okay. Um what do you advise women, since we're on the air and we have women listening, what can they be doing to cut down the risk of having breast cancer? Uh, well, there are certain risks that, uh, unfortunately, we, we can't change, right? So if you have a family history uh, or a self-history, or those are things you can't change. You can't change um, uh, the, the when you went through menopause or when you went through menarche. But, for example, things like alcohol. Alcohol has been shown that it does slightly increase the risk of of breast cancer. And so um, women who drink two to three um, alcoholic beverages per day have a 20% higher risk than non-drinkers. I'm not going to tell our... I didn't know uh, that. Our, I'm not going to tell people to not drink ever, but, you know, that's something... That's not a bad of, idea. <laughs> that's not a bad idea, but, you know, but and I don't want to scare people, but it's something that, you know, sort of... Everything in moderation, right? So kind of having that in the back of your head. Um, Body weight. So women uh, who gain weight after menopause have a higher risk of breast cancer. So trying to make sure that after menopause, women sort of keep their weight down, uh, making sure they're exercising um, and eating well. Exercise has been shown to decrease the risk of breast cancer by 10 to 20% when they've looked at people who exercise regularly versus people who are not active. Um, eating vegetables and fruits has been shown to be uh, a protective measure. Um, in younger women, breastfeeding has actually been shown to decrease the ra- uh, rates of, of breast cancer. Uh, this is a tremendous information, and, and I really want to take time to thank you for spending time with us today, Helen. Um, Dr. Helen Paracas has been our guest, 860-714-6574 at St. Francis Hospital Medical Center. Thanks again, Helen. Th- thank you so much for having me. Um, and thanks to our board operators. We had two today. We had Matt and we had Mike on the board. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, we're back to football. We have a kickoff at noon, and we're playing Cincinnati. So I will be back with you in two weeks. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society.
Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.